Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Svilin Rangelov. He is the CEO and co-founder of Dronomics. There are medium range drones uh, specific to cargo. Uh, and I'm talking with Svilin who is in Sofia, uh, Bulgaria right now. So welcome to the show, Svilin. Thank you, Stuart. It's really great to be here. So building a drone, how did you manage to find yourself building a drone company in Sofia, Bulgaria? <laughs> um, well, you know, the inspiration came from the Amazon drones, which were unveiled around six years ago. I think it was December 2013. And my brother is an aerospace engineer. So um, we, we were really impressed. But at the same time, we thought, you know, in a country like Bulgaria, in a city like ours, um, maybe these small multi-rotors are not going to be the best possible solution. And um, we, we started brainstorming and then realized, okay, you know, Amazon will solve that because they have all the money in the world. Um, why don't we just focus on the middle mile instead? So our drone is essentially the size of a small Cessna airplane. Um, it's a fixed wing drone. So, you know, two wings, an engine up front, uh, standard tail. And it's meant to carry around 800 pounds at a distance of up to 1,500 miles. So really, um trying to reinvent the air cargo industry because right now you have very big airplanes flying between very big airports and getting offloaded onto very big trucks but then these big trucks they can't really drive through your neighborhood so they do an additional offloading point to small vans so we said let's just create a flying version of that small van that does the last mile very interesting. So basically the thesis is that, is that Amazon is going to take those last mile delivery drones, uh, which will be smaller cargo. Uh, but then with that, there will be a whole reimagination of what it means to deliver cargo around the world. And then there's an opening niche for uh, medium sized um, airplane si style drone delivery and it's autonomous. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it, exactly. Mm. So, um, Someone once said that it's uh, it's really hard to predict uh, Walmart, right? So the point was that um, in the beginning, people used to shop from a general store in their own community. Um, then the invention of the of the car uh, made it possible for them to travel to uh, nearby towns, and you know that's how you ended up with WalMarts and supercenters and so on. Now, by being able to fly. Um, you're able to go at a higher speed, there's no traffic, so you can expand your radius of uh, sort of coverage uh, several times. And that means you don't need to, uh, I mean, you, you can simplify your distribution because otherwise every Walmart has to carry the same sort of like inventory and so on. So um, that's a huge hidden capital cost um, in everything that we purchase. So unlocking that third dimension actually brings a lot of benefits um, to, to everyone in their daily lives. Interesting. And then, so what I'm imagining then is these smaller last mile delivery drones within cities. So if I'm in San Francisco, I'll you know, go on Amazon and then I'll have this last mile thing that'll deliver from the warehouse. But then what you guys are covering is city to city. Is that correct? It, exactly, exactly. And maybe even state to state. Um, you know, we, one of the reasons we picked 1500 miles is because um, if, you, if you place a point in the center of the 48 states, um, it's, it, this point would be 1500 miles away from all four corners of the 
48 uh, uh, states. Very interesting. And so then why are you guys in Sofia? Why did it make sense to start in Sofia? Well, you know, um, at the time, um, people were funding small drones, but a, a big machine like this uh, seemed too risky uh, to a lot of investors. So uh, the amount of money that we had access to was very little. And Sofia is um, very low tax environment, um, low cost of living and so on. So it just made a lot of sense. My brother moved back from the Netherlands um, to, 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 to start the company with me here. Um, I myself had before lived in the US, I studied there. Um, so, but Bulgaria seemed like a good choice. Uh, and we're really happy to be here because it's given us a lot of advantages. Mm. And now have you started to raise money um, in terms of expanding or what's the, what's the plan from here on out? Sure. Well, we are um, we are raising money. We've uh, raised uh, several million to date uh, over these five years. We're now a team of 22, uh, and we're at a point where we'll be um, looking to start commercial operations within the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite exciting. One of the biggest uh, challenges that mm-hmm. has been sort of lifted in recent uh, months was the regulation challenge because I I suppose we were the beneficiaries of this rising tide with uh, all these flying car startups because finally regulators realized that you know what maybe the time has come that uh, we will have to deal with a lot more flying objects in the air (laughs) and um, yeah so so this uh, this approach is really um, I mean we, we congratulate them and we're we definitely see a lot more cooperation now happening. This is so interesting because I've, I've been doing a lot of investigations into Latin America, Africa, and India in terms of, I see that there's, I'll set this up from the beginning. So there, M-Peso was this a form of sending money for peer to peer that appeared in Africa oh, yeah. first, which was like a, just like a, it was a way to send it from your simple mobile phone to another simple mobile phone. And it leapfrogged in the United States, which had been, built off of the idea of a credit card infrastructure. And so this was the first example of it. And then it goes from M-Pesa to many other things. And I've, I've isolated here in Latin America and Africa and India, um, and maybe some other countries as well, is that uh, the three main things that, the three or four main things that these countries have to focus on before they engage in, in technology in a really meaningful way is um, finance infrastructure. So, you know, paying people peer-to-peer, all those other things that are easier in, in more developed countries, uh, and then education, online education, uh, and then um, uh, the other one is uh, e-commerce ecosystem. Uh, and that e-commerce, the hardest part about being here in Latin America is that the roads are not of high quality, so the actual physical infrastructure is not of high quality. Um, and But what you're talking about makes me think about a, a basically a leapfrogging that can happen here. Um, because if they get their regulations right, if each of these countries chooses their regulations right and starts to allow things to be in the sky, they don't need roads, um, which is really interesting. Uh, what do you think about that? Exactly. Yeah. No. So uh, I, I definitely agree. Um, so my brother is an aerospace engineer. I myself studied economics, and to me, um, in enhancing trade and actually, you know, enabling uh, communities to sort of leapfrog or use whatever's best available technology rather than going through the through every step of the ladder that's always been a big theme with us um what i find really interesting as well is that um Mpesa in in, in e-commerce uh, e-commerce is growing very fast in um almost every market around the world mm-hmm. and and you know the, the reason is that you have these rising middle classes and and people have this access to information so they can see on social media and everywhere they can see all these different goods so now they want them um and and then there are there are merchants who are happy to offer them uh, now the, the the payment thing a lot of those orders actually happen cash on delivery yeah. so in uh, in many markets specifically in africa uh, there's a high correlation between how much time you wait for your purchase to arrive and then whether the customer would actually reject the order. 
mm. because if it takes like five days, seven days, maybe you spent the money, maybe you don't have the money anymore to give it to the career, uh, or maybe you reconsider it or you found it uh, somehow, or maybe you were talked out of it. So uh, in, in a sense, Mpesa uh, and such instant payment systems, they were great because in, in emerging markets, the rule of law is not necessarily um, very consistent which means that you have to create sort of a trustless network and making shipping faster is a way of you know again not relying on trust because when you think about it in in the west whenever you place an order you uh, you don't pay cash on delivery it's instantaneously taken from your card mm. but but then you wait for the package to arrive so there's this mismatch and then you trust that the package will be delivered that you're not going to be cheated out of it because you rely on the rule of law. Interesting. And that, so that, that opens up a whole new uh, train of thought for me is that this trustless aspect, which I mean, cryptocurrencies are and and their, their goal is a lot of them is to be trustless and, and, you know, Bitcoin is essentially trustless. Uh, I don't have to, I mean, but then there are other problems with that. So for example, if I pay with Bitcoin immediately and then I don't get the product, that's a, that's a very big problem. Um, uh, and then I can't, I can't claw back that transaction. There's no way for me to actually receive my Bitcoin back if I don't get that, that thing. But of course the dark web markets have, have, um, shown that, uh, they can build e-commerce marketplaces that have a, um, what's the word? It's a, uh, escrow system where both parties agree that the deliver goods have been delivered. So that's really interesting. So how, it will what will your first market be? Will it be in developed countries? Because you you mentioned the United States and having that fifteen hundred mile point, or are you going to go for both? What's what's the plan? Well, um, we we can't put our eggs in one basket. Uh, mm-hmm. After all, while the regulations are um, turning in our favor, you know they could just as likely change. So we're pursuing several opportunities around the world. I do believe, though, however. Um, that once it is uh, proven in one or two markets, um, the rest will open quite quite quickly because aviation is not so much subject to an opinion, but rather to uh, science. And that's Mm -hmm. the really good thing about it. Uh, The the rules of of, uh, nature, they're the same everywhere around the world. Um, So it's really good that you can show the track record of flight hours um, and they can apply elsewhere that's really interesting because it's not it's not something like um uh it's hard to, for me to think of an example but but it's not something that the public is going to really have a huge huge kind of interest in there they're not going to be like oh we can't allow those flying those flying vehicles to enter our, our world because it's going to you know uh screw up our world or anything like that it's not it's it doesn't seem like the public will have much of an interest so uh that will kind of remove this um except that it might be really cool and that people might think, Oh, that's really cool. Uh, and so it will remove this kind of contentiousness that a lot of things are dealt with in the political realm. Um, and it's just kind of like nobody's, nobody sees it basically. Cause this is, I haven't heard too much talk, talk about this outside of outside of Silicon Valley in terms of uh, drones, delivery drones, basically. I mean, it, there was a time about three or four years ago where people got excited about it, but it's kind of died down now. Is that accurate? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, when you when you look at how things played out, uh, I believe we were really um, probably one of the very few teams that didn't jump on the opportunity for small multi-rotor drones. And 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 when you when you in hindsight, this was we were right, right? Uh, what ended up happening is very big, very well-funded companies. Um, from the West completely got obliterated by DJI. Um, I, I find it very interesting that that consumer drones is perhaps the only consumer category where you have one single brand dominating more than two thirds of the market. Mm. This this isn't even you know Apple with iPhones doesn't have that market share. Nobody has that kind of market power. Mm. And um, you know kudos to the DJI guys, but uh, really it's it's always been a, a challenge to put in to, to combine a lot of different capabilities and a lot of different sensors into a small package mm-hmm. so um that's why small drones for delivery haven't really picked up is you know the the reliability that you need for constant operations 
uh, in an urban setting, especially autonomous ones. These are very high standards to clear. Um, so in a, in a small several kilogram shape where every gram matters, uh, you can't really, you don't have a lot of room for redundancy. Hmm. Interesting. And you, I mean, once again, Amazon has been spending, I don't know how much money and how much manpower on this and it's been six years, right? And they still don't have that. So that tells you something. And the piece that you're talking about, this mid-range is, is more clear because it looks like an airplane and, and it's not like going to be flying around a city. It's going to be in kind of airspace that isn't already used. Um, Absolutely. And we also don't use batteries. So we are, uh, we use the same engine as the Predator drones. Um, it's a piston engine. It's a propeller. Uh, it uses regular gasoline. What you put in your car, you can put in that. Uh, so that means it's a certified engine with a known fuel type. So um, especially from a regulatory and aviation standpoint, that's really the only way because um, there hasn't been a single battery and a single electric engine that has been certified for aviation to date. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and that also is why, um, you know, vertical takeoff uh, machines haven't really picked up yet. Interesting. And you, it is not in commercial use as of now? No, not yet. We expect to be in a year. And you guys are essentially in the testing phase right now where you're testing it. I imagine you're testing it in Bulgaria or did you have to yeah. clear regulations to do that? Yeah, yeah, we did. And um, we've tested here for more than two years now. We've tested various sizes of uh, subscale prototypes. Um, we are in the process of finishing the full scale prototype. We'll be testing it uh, early next year. Um, and we promise not to shave until we're ready, my brother and I. So <laughs> if this is a video podcast, you'd, you'd see what I mean. Um, but yeah, we hate beards, actually. So <laughs> That's very funny. It's very, uh, very interesting. And um, so you're testing Bulgaria. And that seems like that was it. Was that part of this decision to remain in Bulgaria? Is like that you did you know the regulators beforehand? Can you describe the process of talking to people in Sofia in order to to get them to say, hey, you can do this? No, actually, we didn't know them. Uh, we, but when we approached them and we said, look, this is what we want to do, um, we're very open about it, right? And it's in our best interest. Ultimately, what we want to do is not sell the drones. What we want to do is sort of be the career, that middle mile service provider, mm. um, which means that mm. f from their point of view, they see uh, somebody who is interested in maintaining safety, which is their number one priority, is interested in following standard operating procedures and you know ensuring that everything runs smoothly and uh, staying out of trouble. Mm. So they, they respect that. And that's not just here. We, we, we speak to a lot of regulators around the world in Africa, Asia, um, Western Europe as well, and even the US. But, um, you know, Bulgaria was just closer. Um, and we believe it will be one of the first markets for us. So that's really interesting, that part that you said you wanted to be the couriers because um, so you're going to become like a FedEx or an UPS basically where it's where it's you are delivering the goods, you're signing the contracts, and then the airplanes are essentially like your trucks basically. Exactly. So the interesting thing is, and the reason why, I mean, we're not really curing cancer here, right? Uh, people, um, people don't need to be chaperoning packages in the air, um, or at least when it comes to this sort of operation. So we're not the first team to think of that, and we won't be the last. Uh, the, the, the significant thing about our design is that we, and that's why we called it the black swan, because to remind us to, that how challenging it is to achieve two concurrent goals, to be cheaper to operate and to be cheaper to produce. Mm. Um, and new technology is generally either or, right? It's never both. Uh, you have the first flat screens were like obscenely expensive until economies of scale drop the cost down. Mm. What we want to do is essentially leapfrog to that point where okay, you're going to have probably somebody else doing really expensive, really niche cargo drones. What we want to be is the, the Walmart. What we want to be is like the ubiquitous, the one that is village friendly, that is, you know, everywhere you, you can find it. 
and um, and and that's that's why long term we we know that hardware is a race to the bottom. So there will always be somebody who mm. who come up and you know be hungrier than us and so on. So we are we will be ultimately happy to partner with other drone makers yeah. and integrate their drones into our system. So this is reminding me of the book Loon Shots uh, by Safi Bakal. Have you read that book? No, I have not. I've been recommended, but haven't yet. I can send you my interview that I did with him. Um, and essentially the thing that it's reminded me of is there is a, a strategy style loon shot, which is like Walmart. Um, and then there's a product style loon shot. And so what you're just telling me is that you are going to focus more on the strategy style loon shot, which makes a lot of sense. And also leads me to believe that it might make sense to really, I mean, you're already doing it in Bulgaria, but like have, because I think, I think ultimately you're going to see more of that opportunity come from the developing world. Cause at, like, like I just said, like if you could get goods from Bogota to Medellin, like through this highly mountainous terrain with these roads where you get behind a truck and I've been behind these trucks where it takes you just like 12 hours behind this truck. Um, if you could just go in the air and get, get your goods from Bogota, Bogota to Medellin, like that would just be, I, I just see that being much more profound, particularly as most of the economic opportunity is now going to be found in countries in Latin America, in Africa, and in India. Um, and you know, I mean, even in China, the 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 opportunity is lowering because because of that the price of, of labor. And it's still, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be really interesting what you guys can do in the in the, in the developing world, the emerging economies. It is. We're we're very very excited. We, uh, I mean, especially when you think about Africa as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with the current demographic trends, projections say that by the end of this century, um, 90% of the new population will come out of Africa. So the world will be a 11 billion world versus a 7 billion now. And 90% of these 4 billion new humans are going to be on the African continent. It's, it's amazing that you're going to get the first 100 million city will be Lagos, mm. right? Um, and then you think about a little bit and you're like, wait, who wants to live in a hundred million city, right? Like people don't really enjoy living in a 10 million city nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, and it's um, part of it is traffic. Part of it is, you know, the fact that these opportunities, they accumulate to these uh, magnet cities, uh, these centers of commerce. So if you, again, if you can create some sort of a, a more distributed economic opportunity, the only way to do that is to lower that friction, to lower, let's say, the, the payment costs, the, the shipping costs, all these features of commerce that uh, you can't avoid, this tax, if you will. And this is, this is the most interesting thing, question that I have personally, because um, I, I see there's two ways that the world is going. It, obviously, from where we stand right now, most everybody will tell you that cities are the, are the future and that the city is what will happen. Um, and I do actually, I do fall on that, that the city is going to remain power for the next hundred years or so. But there is this interesting thing that could happen, which is that if the infrastructure for uh, distributed work happens, um, if culturally we adopt distributed work, then that opens up the in, kind of like a, a way for people not necessarily to live in the cities. Uh, and then you open it up with another, what you're talking about in terms of a distribution, distributed um, commerce as well that could be pretty interesting in, in terms of, you know, if I, if I move out into the countryside, cause I, I do fundamentally believe particularly in the cities like Medellin where I'm right now, it's in the emerging economy. Pollution is nuts and traffic is nuts. And um, I can imagine yeah, it's only going to increase like in Bogota, the same thing. And in Delhi, I mean the, the pictures of Delhi a couple months ago where the pollution is just like, nobody, nobody really wants to do that. But if you're on, you know, level f- there's four levels for Hans Rosling's emerging economy um, things. There's, you know, level one where you're earning a dollar a day, you have to walk 12 miles a day for water. Um, and then there's level two where it's like, you get a bicycle, uh, you get a feature phone. And then level three, you finally get that smartphone, you get a motorcycle and level four. That's where, you know, most of my social circle in San Francisco is like way, way up on level four. And just by the fact that they're in San Francisco, um, they've got access to all this infrastructure and people there are totally blind to the fact of like what it really means to move from level two to level three or from level one to level two. Um, and, and, and the cities are that opportunity for where 
where you can go from level one to level two and level two to three. And that's like, that's the only way you get to the city. And so that brings up a very interesting question as to like, as distributed work, because right now distributed work is, you know, n- nobody in Colombia, very, very few people understand unless they're in this digital nomad kind of scene, very few people understand what a digital nomad is or like what remote work is or all these different things. So I wonder how quickly those things are spread. But with this piece of distributed commerce as well, that's a really interesting one that I haven't thought too much about. What is your thought on it? Well, with remote work, um, nowadays you, you'll be able to finally, and faster modes of transportation. I do believe that urban air mobility um, and flying cars will become a reality. Um, and then they will let you, you know, live even farther away from your place of work if uh, that's what you needed. But, um, and I do believe also that uh, cities will continue to have their power, but I just believe that it's currently unsustainable at the rate that they're accumulating um, opportunities. It's just not, and and you saw that in recent years, uh, I mean, with uh, elections in several countries, uh, turning out the way that people realize that there's a bigger and bigger divide. Um, how many factories have been built in San Francisco in the past five years, right? The, the, a lot of the value um, has shifted from manufacturing to services mm. and services like cities. Manufacturing more and more prefers rural areas, right? Mm. Um, so I think there's this sort of like tug of war going on and again, if, 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 if you get into the business of lowering those, um, uh, those costs of payment, of communication, and of transportation, uh, these three pillars, then you're lowering that tax of, on everyone because it's baked in into everything we buy. It's, it's baked in into everything we do and spend. That's really interesting. The I had never heard that about, but it makes sense. The manufacturing being more towards rural areas and services more towards cities. Very interesting. Do you think, you know, 3D printing, of course, was way overhyped, but do you think 3D printing will change that, the economics of that? I don't really see it happening in the near future, simply because we ourselves have been uh, customers of 3D printing technologies, and that's great for things which are uh, of a very limited number of materials. Mm. But I think it's a very far uh, future when we can 3D print the next iPhone at home. Yep. Where it's a distributed. I mean, I mean, truly so so you, you, you either have to, you know, somehow teach the consumers that they should expect less, uh, which is counter to everything American, to everything, you know, capitalist. Um, and who knows, maybe with the new sort of green movement, this would happen. Maybe people will say, you know what, it's not sustainable to have a, an iPhone anymore. You should have a feature phone for whatever reason. Maybe it's less parts, less shipping for those parts and so on. I don't know. I think, um, I think the green movement is only a product of capitalism. Like it's, you only get to the, to the ability where you can choose a green way once you've experienced the benefits of capitalism. Like I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, being here in Colombia, it's like there's a, there's an organic food restaurant right down the, down the street and that's great. But the only people eating at that restaurant are the people who already have money. And it's like, um, you know, that, that only, that only comes into consciousness once you've stopped, uh, fighting for your basic needs. So I, I just don't, I don't see it happening. I oh, mean, yeah. The young people Absolutely. might have a difference in that, but yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, yeah, I think it, it, oftentimes it comes from a position of privilege to want to demand other people to change their lifestyle. Mm. Um, and, and let's not forget that, again, a big source of the pollution was the, um, came from the industrialized world, you know? So that did take a lot of benefits from having resources shipped in from the colonial days and so on. So it's, I think it's a very deep issue that's, um, and, and to some extent, I'm, I'm grateful that it's uh, getting some publicity right now uh, because it's making a lot of people realize, you know, a lot more about moral choices of their consumption, mm. which wasn't the case before. Mm. Before, if you think about it, like what was, uh, what was the average commercial? 
um, it was hinging on some basic instincts like you know sexual pleasures or attention and so on and now i feel like uh, brands are trying to communicate uh, on, a, on a different level which mm. in my opinion is just better mm. interesting so i would love to figure out more about how you found out about or just like because it I, I, I will, I'm slightly expecting, but wasn't totally expecting to have a conversation like this about drones and distribution of cities with somebody who is in Sofia, Bulgaria. And I want to understand more about the spread of crazy ideas uh, to places that are outside of Silicon Valley. And can you talk more about how you became inspired to build these drones and like, and, and just to take on this like large uh, uh, ambition that you have? Absolutely. Well, um, I was in college and somebody uh, recommended a book to me. Uh, this is the early 2000s. And, and the book was about starting your own business. And I've always been fascinated uh, in even in school. I did, you know, some student led businesses uh, and so on. But uh, in that book, there was a paragraph that really stood out. And it was based on some uh, small business research uh, on data sets uh, from the US, maybe from the 80s or whatever. And it said that there is, if you start a business, uh, there is a 95% chance it will fail in the first year. And there's a 99% chance it will fail in the first five years. So, um, so, so that really impressed me, but it really didn't discourage me at all. Rather, it, it made me, you know, more excited about the challenge and but it always reminded me that if you want to start something you need to be ambitious because the odds are against you anyway so you're not taking a lot of additional risk like you're taking just a couple of points of additional risk in reality for having a much crazier idea so um to, to me there was never a thing like oh are we shooting too high and so on not at all. And this is very interesting. So it's getting to this point, and this is, I've never been able to express this yet. I think my thesis for the show is that um, entrepreneurship has nothing to do with culture, geography. I mean, it is slightly influenced by those things, but I think that the basic DNA of an entrepreneur is a human thing. Um, and that in the last 30 to 40 years, we've noticed that a lot of that has happened in Silicon Valley because we've had this ambition, but just like you said, you've read it in a book. Um, and so I, I, and I think that in order to do this for a long time, you had to come to Silicon Valley because the only people who you could get that accurate information about what's going on correctly right now, or what, what, how somebody has recently done it, you'd have to come to the Silicon Valley and then, um, uh, and then learn there, find out from people. But that information is now being distributed as well. And this is something I've very much noticed in, in my time here in Medellin is that um, I'm meeting people in the digital nomad world or in the, in the entrepreneur world who I have mutual connections with. And it has very little to do with whether I'm actually in Silicon Valley, but it has more fact to do with the people that I've already met previously who I met in San Francisco, but who are on the spread around the world um, because a lot of people are, are leaving Silicon Valley in San Francisco because of, for a lot of re various reasons that I've talked about before on the show. But uh, so I, I do think that the, my thesis is that the, the, this is uh, that the entrepreneurs of entrepreneurs have existed with large ambitions have existed all over the, the planet. Um, and that there have been waves of cycles of innovation where they've been centered in a particular geographic level uh, for example, in Detroit or New York and San Francisco. But I now think that uh, that is that ambition has now been distributed. Um, and I'm really excited about this because this, this conversation with you is seeming to be uh, proving that. So that's, I don't know what your thoughts on it are. No, thank you. But um, so Bulgaria was a communist for about five, uh, 45 years, right? From the Second World War up until 1989. And, and, and the, the way that my parents and their generation was raised was completely different, like ambition and so on. All these were uh, the evil capitalist uh, things and so on. So um, naturally, I was born in the mid 80s. And then uh, so, so the schools hadn't really adapted uh, a lot to, to, to us. You know, me and my brother, we, we were lucky that 
um, our our mother started working for the American uh, high school here locally, mm. and uh, you know we were able to go to that school eventually and um, see a sort of a different uh, worldview because at the time um, a lot of the education was just repetition, right? Respect authority and so on. So a lot of these things that uh, are the opposite of what's being taught in the West, mm-hmm. and and they correlate with sort of, I mean, are you allowed to have an ambition, right? So um, mm-hmm. it, people in America they don't really ask for permission; they ask for forgiveness, if it ever comes well, to that. I, but so I actually want to I want to interject there because I think uh, that. When you said the authority, respect authority, I, that is actually something in, in, in the United States, which is uh, very common in schools, but there is a small percentage of, of schools that, that don't, um, and a small percentage of people who, who don't ha- fall into that authority thing. So it's not, I think probably that the ratio is higher in America, but I think the, 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 um, the trend is, is, is all around the world, like that, that respect or authority thing. I, I think, I think that comes everywhere, but only in Silicon Valley, this idea that you need to ask for um, forgiveness rather than permission, like most Americans probably wouldn't be comfortable with that either. Um, uh, so yeah. Uh-huh. And, and well, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I meant that uh, you're right. I mean, I only went to, to school here in Bulgaria, but um, before I went to that American school, uh, it w- you know, you walk into class and the, the, the teacher would pick on a student and the student would go in front of the class and will have to tell verbatim the, the lesson, mm-hmm. right, that has been assigned before. Um, so it was, I think, taken to, to an extreme, mm-hmm. right? And um, yeah, th- there wasn't really any discussion uh, at all, no group projects, no nothing. Like It was very, you know, you sit, you shut up, and if you're called on, you better start reciting. Yeah, and that is that is a difference. There is a difference there with the, with the the American education system because there is more, a little bit more liberty, I, I, I think, uh, in in just kind of the critical thinking um, and the the development of critical thinking that happens in this school system. But I think it's still only a, a, a small percentage of American schools. And then there's something else you mentioned about the American school, which is a, an interesting thing I've been thinking about a lot. I went to school in Thailand and uh, met a lot of people who were considered international, like third culture kids who basically um, went to those American schools. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, one of their parents would be American, one of their parents would be Thai. Um, and then I learned that it's actually like very common all around the world. And so there's something interesting that I've been noticing over the past 20 years is this growth of third culture people, people who don't, you know, fit into one culture. And I wonder about, and I, a lot of them are, are entrepreneurs. A lot of them go to end up going to the universities. Um, and I really, this is part of the thing that I'm trying to do with the show is that I want to, that seems to be a lot of nationalism happening and a contraction, a lot of countries, um, which maybe, you know, maybe is, is, isn't it? is necessary in some ways, but I do think that it's going to lead us to a lot of political problems. And so my goal is to eventually to connect open-minded people all around the world um, and connect them and network them. Because if we are headed in the way that I suspect we are, which is like a return to um, kind of really intense competition on a global phase and maybe even conflict, uh, then I think the one thing that we have going for us right now is the internet um, and that we can maintain contact as the as the political sphere starts to become more contracted, um, and so there's the, the, there's this sector of the population is very small that I hope to network. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. <laughs> I no, I um, a, a lot of my friends uh, also. So I would say part a big part of my circle is also uh, those sort of international people. Um, who were born in one country, studied in another, work in a third, and, and you know maybe have a partner from a fourth country, and so on. Um, I think it's a, it's always been very inspiring to me um, because I always try to look for what's uh, what's common between us all, and I do I do believe also that media tends to filter out uh, and, and focus too much on the 
you know, the exceptions and the negativity and so on. Negativity sells better than positivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think there's this bias uh, against that. I hope that this uh, recent ri- uh, rise of nationalism is just a blip, but um, who knows, ultimately, mm-hmm. ultimately it's the people's choice, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure uh, to some extent it's driven by a sort of anxiety that you're now, it's kind of like we're now all on a sort of like a global public square, right? And and we're all vying for attention. Uh, you're trying to compete more and so on. It's kind of like, again, we've talked about high schools, but um, you enter high school and you have to compete with uh, others and you, you have to find your tribe, right? Something to associate yourself with and so on in order to, to, to identify yourself with. So I think that's sort of this initial reaction is what's happening now. Um, I do believe that there's a lot more value from internationalism um, and we'll hopefully uh, revert back to it. But uh, yeah, I don't know if it will last a year or 10. Yeah. And I mean, that's ultimately, I do see, you know, at the end of whatever we're about to enter, I do see a much more global, much more connected and a much more sustainable world um, uh, as long as we make the right decisions when it comes to the really difficult uh, and really dangerous uh, toys that we have in our global arsenal. Um, yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. Go for it. Sorry, there's a, there's a thought experiment we, uh, we did once uh, with the team several years ago. And we were like, you know what, because we travel a lot, like especially um, me and a couple of colleagues. We and so we always have to bring like different um, outlet plugs, you know, and so on. And I've always found that like super inefficient, right? Um, or how the U.S. Uh, cell phone networks are on different mm-hmm. wave bands than the rest, and so on. So, but then we we're like, you know what? Hang on. There's this guy Elon Musk. He wants to, you know, take us to to Mars and so on. So eventually, I mean, it's going to take a lot of resources. What's the power going to be on Mars? What, what are power outlets going to look like? Right? We have to decide, okay? Is it going to be the US style, the UK style, the European one, uh, you know, s- s- some other one? Like, is it going to be 110 or 220 volts or something new, right? But we have to decide just because it, takes, it costs so much, you cannot have super variety there. And then, and then you start thinking about all the other things, like, Okay, who's gonna bring the laundry machine? It has to be one brand, right? It can't be like 10 brands. So, I mean, maybe they can run like some sort of a sponsorship competition and so on, do a bit of the funding of that this way. But um, it, it's starting to force me in this thinking, if I have to leave for Mars or if we have to start this new society there, uh, what are we gonna leave behind? Which are the good things? So for example, religion, right? Are we going to build temples there? Are we not going to build temples? Um, these are like really interesting questions to ponder. And uh, I don't really have answers to that. And obviously I shouldn't because I'm in no way representative of uh, what should happen on Mars at all. But uh, it's just super interesting uh, what the future will bring. I agree. And in, as you were talking there, I was thinking that there are a lot of people who have pondered these questions and then offered their own answers in the certain terms of uh, science fiction. And I'm sure somebody's done it before, but I wonder about a world that like spreads or a human species that spreads to the rest of the universe and then um, has some sort of event, which makes it difficult to communicate between those places. And then new cultures kind of spread up and, and like this, this idea of, of standardization, and I think a lot about um, dance. So I'm here in Colombia, and one of the reasons I came here was that dance is very popular here. Um, and there's most people learn to dance when they're kids here, and then they come up with new forms of dance as a group together. Um, and then it's not really standardized what the moves are, but then it's something new emerges, and then somebody comes in and categorizes what's already happened before, um, and then creates a new dance called uh, the one I'm learning right now is caleño salsa. So a new type of salsa that was invented in Cali, um, and uh, and it, so, so they created it at these socials, at these fun parties and stuff like that. Um, and then somebody comes along and categorizes it and turns it into a dance with a bunch of forms and stuff and standardizes it. Um, and so I think a lot about this, of this like standardization that if we 
standardize various plugs or information you guys are going to make some decisions that if your thing becomes very big then essentially you're setting the standard um, for a lot of different other things and and it's so interesting because once you start something you can't go back and restart it because it costs so much money um, it costs so much time and energy and it's it's what are your thoughts on standardization no i i'm a big fan right anything that can i mean standardization can bring uh costs down but going back to your earlier point about leapfrogging, ultimately every technology has a lifespan and at some mm-hmm. point, uh, if there's a community or society that hasn't even had access to it, they may just decide to completely bypass and go to the next generation. Um, but yeah, I, I do believe that more interaction between these um, different identities, uh, between different tribes and, and so on, that's what's going to move us forward, not less, not more entrenchment into nationalism or so on. I mean, traditions are great, don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, I love traditions and, and so on, but, and I've learned to respect other people's traditions, but there, there has to be, um, you know, a mature sort of understanding of, you know, we ultimately want progress. And progress can only happen through collaboration hmm. or conquering, but conquering usually is not as pleasant. Yeah. That's interesting. That brings up a question, progress, the nature of progress and, um, and collaboration. So what is the relationship between progress and collaboration? It's very interesting. Um, so for the next five minutes, uh, what is a question that I should have asked you that I didn't ask already? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Well, um, maybe I can tell a little bit about um, the inspiration for the, for the drones. There was... Um, I was on a trip in India and um, it was a business trip. I was there for a few weeks and I was staying at an Airbnb because uh, I really wanted to get to know um, how locals live. And I love Airbnb and staying with locals. But um, so my cell phone broke at the time. This is 2014, um, early 2014, right after like Amazon showcased the first drones. And my brother and I were still toying with the idea. And then I was like, hey, I'm in India. I need a cell phone. I need to be able to check my email and all that. Uh, so I asked the hosts and they, they told me about this website, Flipkart. Right? They just sold to Walmart, I think, last year, mm. uh, the unicorn. And then on Flipkart is where I learned that Motorola didn't have a single retail shop in India at the time, but instead they decided to strike a deal with Flipkart which was the biggest uh, online shopping site in India at the time, um, and just uh, sell their phones almost kind of like D2C uh, via that website. And then I was asked, while well, I was doing the checkout process, there was a field, uh, like in India, there's not, uh, I mean, addresses, they don't have streets or street numbers and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in New Delhi. So the host told me, you know what, uh, put a landmark and our apartment is number 490 something, but there were two apartments per building. So that meant the neighborhood had at least 250 buildings. And I paid an extra dollar to get next day shipping. So again, 2014, I was really impressed that I could get next day shipping um, in India. And, and the guys uh, sent them a text message five minutes before he arrived uh, so that we can have the cash, because it was again cash from delivery. Um, and, and this whole process really made me think that, you know what, Flipkart was founded by, I mean, I dug into the company and it was founded by these ex-Amazon guys who realized they need to actually create a lot of the infrastructure, the payment uh, backbone, the logistics backbone. So it's not just about creating a website and, you know, launching it on the cloud. Um, and, and that really told me that, you know what, people will find a way uh, and people will uh, find a way to uh, save on 
on delivery to save on uh, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And this is making me think that another thesis of my show is that the rapid adoption of infrastructure and changes to infrastructure and convenience is going to take the whole world by surprise for the next 1 billion users. Um, uh, Cause what you just mentioned about Flipkart, that only happened in the last five years. Like, and that, you know, I, I was in India last, the last seven years ago and that didn't exist. And so I imagine that India right now is probably, it's probably pretty easy to get a lot of different stuff that was like totally impossible. And, and so I'm thinking that this is going to happen really quickly. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Amazon's strategy on India is completely different from their strategy in other markets. Mm. They over there, they've learned that they they can ha- harness the local kiranas, you know, the little corner shops, um, and use them as sort of like order points or drop points. Um, and and then they they take that in that the learnings from these markets, and then they start offering it in other ones. Mm, um, yeah, I, I think. Look, if in the future will people want to sell more or less? I believe more. Uh, will they want to deliver faster and cheaper? I believe so. Yes. So then, anything that you want to do to facilitate this should be a winning bet. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can my listeners find out more about what you're working on? Well, they can reach out. Um, they can. Um, our domain name is dronamics.com. So they can just email me at svilen at dronamics.com. Um, on our website, there's not a lot of info, but uh, yeah, we're just not good at making websites. We're better at making airplanes. Yeah, focused on on, uh, on flying the things first. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.